Well, thank you so much, Jeff. It is a joy and honor to be with you in every way. Um, this is uh, my third visit to Alaska and to your church, and it's feeling more and more like home. So I appreciate those of you who've come and greeted me and uh, said, yeah, I remember when you were here before. And so praise the Lord for that. And Jeff is absolutely right that I pray for you as I pray for him and Judy and the kids, and we are so thankful to God. In fact, I've, I've sent people to this church from Atlanta when they, they're moving to Anchorage and need a place to go. This is my number one go-to place uh, that, I, that I send them to. And so it's a joy to get to come and, and be with my family and to preach God's word this morning. Jeff and I grew up, like he said, together in Virginia. And we were uh, the only two kids. And so my parents actually did pretty well for their investment, right? Two pastors and 10 grandchildren, six from him and four from us. So it was not, not a bad return on the investment. And, but anyway, we grew up in church. You know, this is Thanksgiving week. A lot to be thankful for. A lot to be thankful for. And we are so glad that, that we did grow up in church. But we grew up in the kind of church where you maybe have special evangelistic meetings and maybe they get you to come into the front of the church after it's all over and pray a little prayer and then they tell you that you're a Christian. And a lot of people in the South think they're Christians because they've done that when they were little kids and they didn't really understand what was going on and they've not walked with God for years. Well, Jeff and I both had that experience of going to the front of the church at the end, kind of like Billy Graham style, and it, it wasn't really real in our hearts. Nothing changed. Now, we believed mentally the right things about Jesus, and we had parents that instructed us in right and wrong, and so we felt bad if we did wrong. You know, most of the time we felt bad, a little bit, and uh, we wanted to please our parents and, you know, for whatever thought, please God, but there was really no change of direction in our lives. Well, after I hit youth group age, uh, it started to show up in my life that I wasn't the real thing because I wanted to run with uh, a different kind of crowd than uh, some of the right and wrong ways that I had been taught. And Jeff, he's three and a half years younger than me, he was very concerned about his older teenage brother. We were still dominant out in the front yard, like he said, but spiritually he knew I wasn't where I needed to be. And he and my mom would pray for me and, and talk about their concerns. Well, I got saved. Uh, I became a Christian for real when I was in high school, about 16 years old. Some friends in high school put me on to a guy, and he was a much more powerful preacher than I had ever heard before, but he was fun and funny and engaging. And as I listened to the reality, I used to think things like this. When I get old, like the old people in our church, then I'm going to live for the Lord. Because there was nobody in my youth group or among the young adults in the church we grew up in that were living for Christ. But I had that thought, when I get old, I want to live for Christ. But when I heard this guy when I was 16, the reality came upon me 
that this is absolutely real. Jesus really did do the things in the Bible. He really did die. He really did rise from the dead. And I should be living for Christ right now. And that that was a big turning point. It wasn't until a few years later I looked back and realized that's when I got saved. Well, when I got saved, I was so full of zeal. I didn't really, I knew the Bible stories because we grew up in church, but I didn't know a lot. But man, was I committed to tell you about what I did know or what I thought I knew. And I thought that God had given me the spiritual gift of fixing people too. So not only did I know a little bit, but I was really excited, I wanted you to know about it and I wanted to fix you if you didn't know about it. Well, then Jeff comes along and he gets about youth group age and followed kind of the path that I went down, except even further down. Jeff, he had the opportunity to become one of the cool kids in school, and he took advantage of that. I I always laugh and say, he was a lifeguard at the beach. I mean, that's, that's pretty high status, to be a lifeguard at the beach. Take your break, pull your board out, run out, surf a few waves, save a kid, beat a shark down, come back, you know, and then do his job. I mean, that was pretty impressive. Well, he did not like it that I was now trying to fix him. And I went off to school, and and he was probably happy I was gone for a little bit. But one summer, I stayed home. Instead of going and doing an internship in a church, I stayed home. And part of my motivation was to be with Jeff and to fix him for good. (laughs) I meant well, right? That's what my wife says to me all the time. We we laugh and say, on our tombstone, that's what it's going to say. They meant well, you know? (laughs) But that was one of the things that that, uh, we meant well. So we spent time together, and I actually remember that one day. I went up to the beach to see him when he was at the lifeguard stand, and I got up in the lifeguard stand with him. And he was doing his job, but I was up there with him, and I brought a Bible to the lifeguard stand, and I was trying to read him the Bible. And he was so embarrassed that day. <laughs> and the more embarrassed he was, the bolder I became. <laughs> you know, it was pretty bad. Uh, I also got a job in a Christian bookstore, and I literally, I, I, I say this to my shame, I would try to engage customers in the Christian bookstore just so I could debate them about their beliefs. I would draw them out so that, again, I could try to fix them. It is, it, people, people have told me later that I was really obnoxious during those days. Well, God uh, uh, can hit straight licks with crooked sticks, and God used some of the things that I did uh, in the life of Jeff and others. And Jeff became a Christian and and soon came to the school uh, that I was at as well, at Liberty. And uh, our relationship has been closer and closer, not only as we just love each other as brothers, but as brothers in the Lord and fellow ministers of the gospel. And so it's been a real joy. One of the things that was interesting when I was working in that Christian bookstore one of my coworkers tried to help me because I was kind of obnoxious about this. And he was from a navigator background. And the navigators are famous for memorizing Bible verses. And they have their 
scripture memory packs and they've got Bible verses on little cards. And he was going to go on vacation for a few days and he gave me a scripture. And he says, I want you to memorize this scripture while I'm gone on vacation and afterwards we can talk about it. Now that verse made such an impression on me, I want to read it to you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, read along with me the verse that Don gave to me that day at the Christian bookstore. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The verses that he gave to me were verses 24 through 26. I'm going to actually start reading in verse 20 because that'll be our text for today. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Okay, here's where my verses start. Here's still my life verses. (laughs) And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. These verses mean a lot to me still. And God used them even starting all the way back. I think I was probably 17 at that time. And now 49, uh, 49 and holding. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we, I just thank God for them. And I'd like to talk about them with you today. Let me, let me give you a little bit of the flow of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. He's writ- writing this from Roman prison. Not the house arrest that we read about at the end of the book of Acts. But tradition would say he's in the Mamertine prison in ancient Rome which is a stone prison underground, just a hole in the roof for a little bit of light and where they could drop food down for Paul. Remember at the end of of 2 Timothy, where Paul says, hey, Timothy, come quickly and bring the cloak. Winter's coming. Hurry up. It's getting cold. I need some extra clothing. And so it's, it's a very passionate, earnest letter. Persecution was getting hot And Paul needed Timothy to stand strong. And he was also concerned because false teachers were rising up around. So you've got persecution. If you stand strong for Jesus, you may go to jail. You may lose your life. You may lose your family. And, by the way, there are false teachers who are wanting you to, hey, have a little Jesus, but avoid all the persecution. So temptation was all around, and Paul really wanted to impress upon Timothy that he needed to stand strong for the gospel. And so here in these verses, Paul gives us three ingredients of maximizing our usefulness for the Lord. 
He's elaborating on what he's already talked about, but really wants Timothy to be an effective servant of Christ. Three ingredients of maximizing our usefulness for the Lord. The, and these, these, the headings come from Kent Hughes, who, when I read his commentary, they were so good, I just used them. The, the meat is mine, but the hooks are his. But I wanted to tell you, in case you discover it, so you didn't think I was just copying his sermon. Point number one, the making of a noble servant. Excuse me, the making of a noble ingre- instrument. The making of a noble, noble instrument. Verses 20 and 21. That's where it's talking about the great house and the vessels. Some are good, some are not so good. The word vessels here is a general term for all kinds of home items, like jars, dishes, tools, and utensils. He says some are fancy. They're made of gold and silver. Maybe at Thanksgiving, you get, up, you get out the nice stuff for your guests, and uh, different families have different traditions. But we certainly know the difference between the nice stuff and the normal stuff. Well, he says that there are other vessels here, other household goods of wood and clay. These are the things that you have around that are of so little value that if they get a chip or break part of it, no problem. Throw it in the trash, we'll go back to the dollar store and get another one. Some things are for honorable use, some of these vessels, some are for dishonorable use. So the fancy banquet, you pull out the good stuff. The dishonorable use is not only for just normal household things, it's for the lower forms of household management. Dishonorable use probably refers to jars of clay, vessels of clay that could be used for trash, hauling trash around, or before indoor plumbing, they could be used as chamber pots (laughs) for human waste. Now, in other places, Paul uses this same analogy, jars of clay, and what he's trying to communicate in other places that, yes, we're like those jars of clay, but we hold a precious treasure, the gospel. Or another place, he says, there are some parts of the body of Christ that are more honorable than others, and so God gives greater glory to them because we all count. But here the point is the contrast... The contrast between the vessels. Some are worthy and commendable and some are not. Those pursuing holiness are commendable Christians. The false teachers who have all these spiritual conversations that are completely empty of spiritual meaning or value, they're bad. They are to be avoided. They are like the chamber pots, if you will. So then look at verse 21, and he makes the application of this image. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. After the dinner party, it's time to clean the dishes. But here the term is not just clean, it's thoroughly cleanse or to scour it out how much cleaning would you want to do to a chamber pot before you were willing to let it be used as a stew pot (laughs) 
you got to clean these false teachers out of the church, Timothy. And you don't want to go there in any way. We need to avoid disease and be useful vessels for the master. That's where we want to be, useful in God's hands. Now, we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And that's great. And one of the mottos of the Reformation is faith alone. Faith alone. That's what saves us. It's, it's, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the gospel of our salvation. No works. Well, I absolutely would say yes and amen to those Reformation mottos. However, sometimes we can get the wrong idea that works are a bad thing. But just because we're not saved by our works, we are absolutely saved unto good works. I was so thankful to hear about the Thanksgiving blessing project that you have and and the heart to serve the poor and needy in the community for the sake of the Lord. That's a good thing. Serving one another, that's a great thing to do. That is pleasing to the Lord. We want to be set apart as holy, useful tools for God, ready for every good work. And here we see an important principle for us. Separation from evil is an important part of our usefulness to God for service. Don't you want to be used of God? Don't you want to be a servant of the Lord? Well, listen, let's flip it around. If you are harboring sin, that is affecting your usefulness for God. You say, why am I not a better servant of God? Maybe it's because of that secret porn thing you're looking at. Maybe it's that temper or the boatload of bitterness that you're carrying or your worry or your sloppy relationships. This directly affects your usefulness to God negatively. Jim Neuheiser was a longtime pastor in Escondido, California. Now he's a biblical counseling professor in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he came to our church once and he talked to us about pet sins. And he says, you know, sometimes you have the small pet and you love that little pet. And sometimes he says, we think we can keep some small part of our sin as a pet. Uh, You know, we won't let it get out of control We won't let it grow too big. We'll just maintain this small amount of sin and keep going in life. That's not biblical. That's not right. That's a lie that the devil and your flesh would tell you that you can keep your small sin and still be useful to the Lord. But the Bible is very clear that we need to be clean vessels to be useful for the Lord. So wash that muck out. Go back to the gospel that saved you to to understand that God is holy and you are a sinner and that Jesus Christ came and lived perfectly and died as a substitute for sinners on the cross. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead and we put our trust in him and we're saved. Now we want to go back to that 
and remind ourselves of that glorious truth and say, now what does that motivate me to want to do? It motivates me to want to clean out the muck and live for Christ and to be a servant to him who died for me. So the making of a noble instrument is number one. The second ingredient in maximizing our usefulness to the Lord is the maintaining of an instrument for noble purposes. The maintaining of an instrument for noble purposes. This is verse 22. And you might say this is how to cleanse ourselves. Verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There are two commands in this verse. One command is to flee and the other command is to pursue. Do you remember that movie from the early 90s, The Fugitive with Harrison Ford? It was actually on TV the other day. I saw a little bit of it, and it was, it was brought right back to my heart, pounding in the movie theater when I saw that thing. Tommy Lee Jones is out to get Harrison Ford. The doctor who didn't really do it, but Tommy Lee Jones doesn't care. He's just going to get him no matter what, and Harrison Ford is running for his life. Well, actually, both of those ideas show up in this verse. These two commands. To flee is what Harrison Ford was doing. It's actually, the Greek word is actually where we get our English word fugitive. And the other word is pursue, chase after, go after, strong. So we are to flee something and we are to pursue something. Now, true confessions of a pastor time. Since I'm far away from home, I can tell this story on myself. Look at that verse again. 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee youthful passions. I have used this verse a lot in sermons about sexual immorality. I have believed that that was what this verse is talking about. I have preached using this verse a lot of times. I'm sure when I preached on Joseph and Mrs. Potiphar and Mrs. Potiphar trying to seduce Joseph and Joseph runs away and she grabs his coat, I am sure I did a cross-reference to 2 Timothy 2.22 and said, you guys also need to run for your lives when sexual immorality comes knocking at the door. I don't think that's what this verse is talking about now. Let me pause for a moment and say, it's biblical, it's absolutely biblical to run from sexual immorality, isn't it? Do I have to prove it to you? 1 Thessalonians 4, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, all say, if you're having sex with someone you're not married to, and it's got to be a man and a woman in that marriage, (laughs) sorry we have to make that qualification, then You are committing sexual immorality, and that is a sin against God that you need to repent of. If you maintain that sexually immoral lifestyle, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, you're on your way to hell. The great news about 1 Corinthians 6 is it ends with that wonderful verse, verse 11, I think, which says, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you were changed. If you were in a immoral relationship right now there is hope for you to be forgiven 
and to be transformed. And God can do that for you. So, yes, you need to repent, but the great news is Jesus loves sinners. And Jesus died for sexually immoral sinners. He has saved lots of them throughout the ages, and he would save you as well. So that's true and biblical, but I don't think that that's the point here in 2 Timothy 2.22. The reason why I say that is because the contextual flow is all about getting in fights. It's, it's false teachers running their mouths and getting into arguments. And then my favorite verses that are about to show up here, it's about correcting people in, in gentleness. There's nothing about sexual immorality in this context at all. The word for lust is just a word that means strong desires. And so if you change that and just kind of take away the sexual part in your mind, and it says, so flee youthful passions or desires. And if you remember this from your New Testament history, Timothy, as a young man, was probably in his late 30s or early 40s when he writes this. So he's not, he's not just talking about high school passions. He's talking about the passions of a young man. And in this context, I think the point he's saying is, We have passion sometimes of trying to win arguments or passion for power or passions for impatience or stubbornness or harshness or self-assertiveness or being a hothead. That's what he's saying to Timothy. You got to run away from those things. Those are the passions I think he's talking about. And instead, it's not enough just to flee from the bad things. You have to pursue the good things. He's got a nice list here of things he needs to be pursuing. Pursue righteousness, right conduct of a man trying to please the Lord. Pursue faith, trusting God as a characteristic of your life. Pursue love, growing affection for others, putting their needs ahead of yours in spite of their weaknesses. Pursue peace, Timothy, harmony and fellowship with other Christians. In contrast to the false teachers that are just rabble-rousing and are all about themselves, you need to be a man of God, and you need to pursue these kinds of things. Oh, how important it is for us to pursue holiness in our lives. Robert Murray McShane was a young pastor in Scotland, and he had an opportunity to speak at an ordination Uh, of another pastor who was getting ready to enter ministry. And part of what he said was this. Do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently the cavalry cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember that you are God's sword, his instrument, I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses, so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. What a great quote. What a great reminder. We want to be used of God. We need to be holy in our pursuits. Now, I like it as well at the very end of verse 22 that it's not a solo project. 
We are to pursue these virtues along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We need to pursue it not as a solo sport like playing golf, but like a team sport. And our church is the team. Church participation is vital for your growth as a Christian. And it's a vital part of your persevering as a Christian, especially when times get tough. So it's a team effort. Timothy, be part of the team and keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now the third ingredient in maximizing our usefulness for the Lord is the ministry of a noble instrument. And here's where we come to the finale, 23 through 26. This third warning, or this, uh, this third point, is the third time in this context that he has warned them about useless arguments of the false teachers. So look back at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Then verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And so now we get to verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. They're foolish. We get our English word moron from this word it's moronic it's ignorant they're ill-informed untrained uneducated you know you don't have to know much about a subject to have an opinion about a subject (laughs) and then you you if you have no self-control you express that opinion well these false teachers don't know much about the bible but they still have opinions about it and they want to get into these little dumb conversations that really aren't the main thing at all. I, I remember back home, I was, I was, let me see if I can get it. All right, I was trying to give an example of like false teaching. And you know how people have like these Bible codes and things and they, they, get, all, they get all excited about this thing that doesn't really matter. Like if you hold your Hebrew Bible up to the mirror and you can see the white space sort of in the mirror looks like a horse. And in China... The year of the horse is coming in six years. And so we can know China being part of the Far East. And remember from Lord of the Rings, Gandalf said he was going to come back in the East. And he's sort of a picture of Christ. So Jesus Christ is coming back in six years. I mean, people write that down and sell a million copies, right? People get all into these minor things that don't matter at all in terms of life and godliness, and they miss out on the majors. Paul says, look, don't be engaging in that kind of conversation. Don't even go there. Don't try to refute the person holding his Hebrew Bible up into the mirror. Just walk away. Walk away. I mean, look at it. It is absolutely clear you avoid that. It's only going to produce quarrels. Do you know that arguing... Now, here's my key word is arguing. Arguing about theology is almost always futile. Discussing theology is okay. That's a great thing to do. But arguing 
about theology. How many times have you argued with someone about theology and anybody actually changed their mind? People who genuinely want to learn don't start fighting back when you say something and say, nuh-uh. They ask questions. They seek clarification, but they rarely argue. It is critical for us to learn the difference between wrestling with someone to understand God's truth better and the empty, ignorant wrangling, even if Bible verses are part of the empty, ignorant wrangling. There are two types of discussions here, and there are two different responses that we should have. They are opposite. We should engage with people if they want to understand the truth better. And we should escape from people who are just having these empty, futile arguments. We don't want to be like that. What do we want to be like? Verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. We are the Lord's servants. That's the slave word. We have no will of our own. We're expected to be governed by our master in every respect. And our master says we are not to be quarrelsome. It's an obligation from our master. Chuck Swindoll once said, leaders don't fight, they influence. That's really well said. Leaders don't fight, they influence. We must not be quarrelsome, but instead we must be kind to everyone. This is an attitude that's helpful and peaceful. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody in the room has to become an evangelifish. As Doug Wilson once said, it doesn't mean we have to just get soft and mushy and never have any controversial views about things. It doesn't mean that we don't take a stand for the truth of God. It doesn't mean that we stop preaching boldly. Even sometimes we have to confront people in sin and even offer a rebuke. It doesn't mean we don't go there. We do that. But behind those actions is a gracious intent. If I come to you with God's word and I'm trying to admonish you from God's word, I'm not trying to win. I'm not trying to puff myself up and knock you down. I'm trying to help. I'm trying to be a blessing. That's what we should always have, a gracious intent to win the person to a better relationship with Jesus. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.15, we speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. Both sides of that are vitally important. And we don't want to minimize the truth to bring it down to our level of love. Instead, we want to elevate both truth and love in our ministry. We need to be able to teach, skilled in teaching, know the truth, and be able to convey it accurately and clearly. In contrast to the false teachers who have nothing helpful to say. However, sometimes people don't want to hear the truth even when it's carefully taught and they fire back evil at us. What does it say we are to do at that point? Patiently enduring evil. Sometimes even when you're kind and patient, not everyone eats it up and spreads the love back your way. 
Sometimes they're mean, and sometimes they personally insult you for trying to be gracious and speak the truth to them. Now, I don't know about you, but I can handle most anything except for temptation. (laughs) And if somebody insults me when I'm giving them the truth, I am being tempted at that point. I am being big time tempted to want to strike back. But you can't fight back. You see the verse? You can't fight back. You can't be touchy. You can't be resentful. You have to be patient. And here's what I wrote in my notes next. I wrote how to be like, how we have to be like Jesus was to me. We have to treat other people like Jesus treated me. That's what I wrote in my notes. And immediately I was convicted. And I had to put in parentheses in my notes, is to me, how Jesus is to me. He wasn't just patient a long time ago. How about you? He wasn't just patient a long time ago. He's been patient with me this week. And oh, how we need to be like Jesus to other people, even if they are unkind to you. Now, do we say something? Yes, we do. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Yes, we say something, but we also still have to have a good attitude about it. Now, sometimes people will ask the question, are these opponents Christians or not Christians? And if you really look at the context, it's difficult to say. It's, it's probably within a church context But some of these people were false teachers. Some of the people were influenced by false teachers. Maybe they were saved. Maybe they weren't. We don't even know. But they are opponents of God's word. And so, yes, Timothy, you have to correct them and engage them. But you do it gently, gently, like Jesus, who says, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am gentle, same word, and lowly of heart. You need to be like Jesus as you're correcting your opponents. Now, here's the hope. Here's the hope. Look down again at verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Our hope when we correct a brother or sister or a supposed brother or sister is not to win the argument Not to strike back a counter blow, but it's that God would be at work. And maybe God would open their hearts to get it. Now there's a vitally, vitally important lesson in that phrase right there. It is never the intensity or the volume or the profanity of the speaker that wins an argument or wins a person to become right with Jesus. It is God who uses the truth spoken gently that does the change in the heart of the hearer. Let me talk just for a moment to the angry man in the room and the angry woman in the room. 
Do you believe these words from Scripture? I know one of the main excuses people give for angry outbursts is, I'm right, and they need to hear it. And I need to tell it to them in a way they'll get the point. That is not the way to have spiritual engagement with your wife, with your kids, with your husband, with your friend, with your Christian brother or sister. Your goal is not to make them understand. God is the one that does the changing. And so we can have faith to speak God's truth gently, patiently, lovingly, leaving the results, the spiritual results, the good results in God's hands. Maybe he'll make the change. One summer when I was home, it was that same summer, I tried to minister to my brother. I work construction, and I heard words that I didn't hear at my Christian college. (laughs) And I heard those words a lot, all day, every day, all summer long. There was a lot of potty mouths that I worked with, if you know what I'm saying. And one day, I was really excited because I'd never worked for this superintendent before and I heard that he was a Christian and I was so excited that it was just going to be him and me and I I didn't have to clean out my ears and watch Winnie the Pooh when I got home you know to purify myself I mean this was going to be good we were going to work hard but we were going to not be you know foul mouth and that supervisor was as foul as any of the rest and you know about halfway through the day we were having lunch or took a break or something And, you know, I was already training to be a pastor at that time. He knew I was a pastor. He knew I was in Christian college. He knew he was telling me he was a Christian. And so it was appropriate for me to ask a question. What are you, why are you still using that kind of language? And he says, oh, if I don't use that kind of language, they won't get it. The the workers won't, won't understand what I mean. They won't get it. And I just was really upset by that because it's like, we don't. We don't want to use carnal means to accomplish God's ends. And the same is true with anger and venting at somebody. That's what, that's what I'm, I'm talking to myself. I hope you, I hope you if, if it feels convicting, no, it feels convicting for me first, okay? Remember, this is like my life verse because I offended it so many times. I mean, so much so that my coworker had to say, memorize this, Kratz. You, know? <laughs> you need it. <laughs> you, you need it big time. Let's, let's finish, finish this section here. Verse 26. Oh, well, actually, God may grant them repentance leading to uh, a knowledge of the truth. Uh, we just want to observe that God is the one who grants repentance. The knowledge of the truth is actually used of salvation in chapter 3, verse 7. The false teachers are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That is salvation. So we're saying here that God is the one who sovereignly works as we are speaking his truth in love. Now, verse 26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Okay, this is clear-headedness. 
because of the fall, because of the effects of sin, our brains don't function properly, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? It's deceitful. We're twisted. We're wicked. We're blind when it comes to seeing our sin and seeing the Savior. God needs to help people come to their senses. God is the one who grants repentance. But notice as well that here is the devil. Here is the devil. And we just want to observe that the devil is real. He's personal. And he has a whole mess of demons as well. And they love nothing better than to keep people in their sin and keep people going to hell. The devil... Sometimes people give too much credit to the devil. So Thanksgiving is about to come and somebody's going to be tempted to have an extra piece of cake or pie. If it's me, it's pie. And I can even tell you what kind of pie and I'm going to be tempted, but it's not going to be the devil. Okay. The devil is not worried about how many pieces of pie you have. Most likely your flesh. I'm not saying you couldn't be sinful on Thanksgiving. You certainly could, but the devil has much more big things he's working on, like creating false religions and keeping people blinded to their sin and keeping people deceived. Well, that's the picture here. Here's a person in the snare of the devil, the snare of the devil. They are captured with lies and deceived by the devil, and they are captured to do his will. This is like Judas, where Satan entered Judas and he was captured to betray Jesus. Heretics' problems are not purely intellectual, they're also spiritual. They are trapped by the devil. And I want you to see that engaging people with the truth of God is doing spiritual warfare against the devil. Sometimes we want spiritual warfare to be a lot bigger deal. And we want to have to say special warfare prayers to deliver people from the demonic uh, oppression of this or that sin. But most spiritual warfare is not casting out demons by using the right formula. It's applying the word of God to people's hearts. And as they understand the truth of God... God releases them from the deception of the devil. You can say, biblically, I think that this is exactly right, we are engaging in spiritual warfare this morning. As I seek to explain the word of God, and we seek to understand it, and believe it, and apply it, that is what frees people from the grips of Satan. In 2 Corinthians... Chapter 10, listen to Paul's description of spiritual warfare. Verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. That's spiritual warfare. We're destroying Satan's arguments that people are believing. And every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's spiritual warfare. If you look at the believer's armor in Ephesians chapter 6, 
I mean, I don't know if you've really done a study of Ephesians 6, verses 10 and following, but what kinds of things are the armor of God? The breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. That's, that's my position in Christ. That's practical holiness. That's spiritual warfare, being holy. What's my shield? The shield of faith. That's believing the promises of God. That's spiritual warfare. I thought spiritual warfare was having to, you know, pull out this book of exorcist prayers, you know, and and say them at the right time with the right formula and power over the demons and getting their names and casting them out in Jesus' name. No, it's believing the promises of God, understanding God's truth, not believing the devil's lies, reminding yourself of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, putting the gospel on your feet, God's truth as a belt, using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's what spiritual warfare is. That's what we are doing in every way. Now, let me end here. We just celebrated the Reformation. We love those quotes, sola scriptura, the scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. There's another slogan that came later in the Reformation tradition, and it is Semper Reformanda, always reforming. And what that means is we must all grow in our understanding of God's word and put it into practice in our beliefs and in our lives. As young Christian, maybe you were like me, You're really zealous, but you don't know a whole lot about the truth. And praise God that even though God saved you just as you were, he didn't leave you just as you were. He starts changing us and making us more like Christ. So for the last 30 years or so since I became a Christian, I've been trying to pursue graciousness and becoming more gentle because I knew that was a big time sin in my life. And let me assure you, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that saves you is also good enough for today. It's good enough for today. Jesus did not just die for the sins that you committed before you first believed in him. He died for the sins that you committed last week. God loves harsh people. God loves impatient people. God loves angry, bitter people and thank him for it. It is not because you are so worthy that God loves you. He loves you because he wants to. He chose to love you. And he chose to send Jesus to die even for your mature Christian sins. And he's at work in your life, helping you to become more and more like Jesus. May it be, brothers and sisters, that we have semper reformanda in our hearts today. That we would say, oh God, as you've convicted me of this or that from your word, help me repent, help me flee from that sin, and now pursue the virtues that are here in the word of God. It's not enough just to not do the bad things. We have to do the good things. And help me to do that by God's grace. And thank God that you're in a church surrounded by brothers and sisters who are in this race together. We're in it together. Not all by ourselves. If you feel all by yourselves, 
Come find one of your elders. Look around the room. Say hi. Meet somebody and say, I need some help in this part. And they'll probably say to you, I need some help in that part. Let's go have coffee and talk about it. And let's try to help each other grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Hey, if you've never come to faith in Christ, let me say, you are invited today. If you know, hey, you know what? I am not a real Christian. You and your brother thought you were saved for a while, but it really, when you looked at your life as young teenagers, you weren't. And God saved you. And that's what I need today, too. Well, listen, make today your day. You don't have to come to the front of the church. The Bible never talks about going to the front of a church to become a Christian. The Bible says, repent and believe in Jesus. And you can do that right where you're sitting. So just right now, bow your heart, bow your head and say, oh, Lord, I see my sin. Please help me. Please have mercy. Help me to believe in Jesus. And he loves to save sinners. Let's bow our heads now and pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name and and to think deeply about your truth. And Father, even as this is such a convicting passage for me, and I know for many in this room, I pray that you would give comfort, give comfort and grace because you love us so. And even though these are terrible sins, you are so kind to point them out in our hearts so that we can repent and find the healing balm of your grace. Thank you that you love sinful people because we all qualify. And I pray for any in this room who's not ever put their trust in Christ. I pray that today your Holy Spirit would come and grant them repentance leading to the real knowledge of the truth. And that they may escape the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. Thank you that you do this kind of work, this kind of spiritual warfare. And thank you so much for this church. I do pray your richest blessings upon them. Protect this church from the devil and his schemes. Thank you so much for a church committed to the scriptures. And a man here to preach your word week in and week out who loves you and loves the word and is preaching out of the overflow of what he's learning himself. I pray that you would bless Jeff and the other elders, bless the brothers and sisters here. And I pray that this church would be an awesome lighthouse of the gospel in Anchorage. I pray that the gospel would reach from this place to the neighborhoods. And from this place to the nations, for the glory of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.